Hey, it's Johanna Mascon. On this episode of Press Advance, I'm talking to someone who you probably think you know, Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer and I first met at News Nation's Bureau in Washington, D.C., where we're both political contributors. But of course, Sean Spicer had become the public face of the Trump administration, standing at the White House podium in an administration where his boss, Donald Trump himself, often served as chief spokesperson. He became a Saturday Night Live skit. His briefings were heavily televised, far more frequent than any of ours had been, even the infamous one where President Obama wore a tan suit. And a lot of people loved to hate Sean Spicer. When Sean and I were on, the first time we were with Mick Mulvaney and all of us are joking, he was quick to make jokes, laughed at his own expense, but I wanted to get to know him better. I feel like politics can often rob personalities of their soul. We start thinking of them as a member of a team and not as a human being, that little kid who grew up in America with big dreams. On Press Advance, my number one goal is to press advance on this toxic partisan mess. It doesn't serve our policy or our futures. So I wanted to pull back the curtain and get to know Sean as a person, get to know about his experience in Washington, and I started by asking him if he has any regrets. No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. Um, you have people that look in the rearview mirror, look going ahead. And I think if you look at, in, in terms of regrets, that suggests that you did something wrong. I think even the experiences that didn't go well teach you something. I always tell people the first internship I ever did in Washington, I hated. I wrote a paper. I was at, I was doing a semester down at American University. The thing that I tell people is that one of the things that sometimes happens to you is that you learn about yourself, what you, not just what you like, but what you don't like. And in this particular case, I learned what had been a really good experience for somebody else wasn't a good experience for me. And so I didn't regret the internship. I didn't enjoy it. But I also recognized that that taught me more about what I wanted to do because of what I didn't want to do. But that was your second internship, right? Didn't you intern for Senator Mitchell, a a Democrat, when you were in high school? Is that right? Yeah. So when I was in high school, we had for spring break, we could get opportunities. And I, uh, I came to Washington. My history professor in high school had known Senator Mitchell's office manager. And I said, I really would love to check out Washington. I'd love to figure out how Congress works. And number one, at that time, I'm not sure I really appreciated the difference between Republicans and Democrats. And number two is the whole goal was just to experience it. I mean, as you can imagine, as a high school intern, it's not like they're asking you to draft policy papers. I literally would take photos of constituents and bring them over to the majority leader's office from his personal office. They would send me back with something that needed to go to somebody in Maine. It got me to see the process up front. Well, it was interesting to me to read that somehow at 13 years old, you managed to figure out how you could get yourself into a elite school that your parents wouldn't have normally had access to by riding a bus and being a day student. What motivated you at 13 years old? I can't get my 11-year-old. I don't know about you. I know we have kids around the same age, but 13 years old, taking a bus to a school. What was the motivation there? Portsmouth Abbey is a a Catholic Benedictine school on Aquitnick Island, uh, which is in Rhode Island, obviously, but it's uh, Portsmouth, Middletown, and Newport make up the island. My Father's side of the family is from Newport. 
and we lived in a town called Barrington, which is closer to Providence. And when I was a kid, um, my grandmother would always talk about this school and say, oh, the, and at that time before it was an abbey, for those of you who aren't Catholic, it, it was a priory, which is just a smaller version of an abbey. And so I kind of grew up in, with this folklore that this was this place that smart kids went. And I kept thinking, well, I, I think I'm smart. I think I can do this. And, and it was more folklore than anything else. Just this idea of if this is where kids go that are really smart, that are good, you know, I started thinking, well, then I, I want to do this. And my parents kind of were like, okay, great. And so I would send away for the brochures and I went to a couple open houses and finally in about early seventh grade, uh, eighth grade. So yeah, they were like, wow, the kid's serious. <laughs> and, uh, and my parents clearly couldn't afford the school, but they were like, if he's this serious about his education, maybe we should humor him. And, and I went through the process and, and, uh, applied. And, and then there was a bunch of financial aid options that were available, some scholarships. And so I, I was able to get in, but it wasn't, it, it meant uh, it's a primarily a boarding school. Obviously, as, I, as you brought up, I was a day student and there was a bus, Rhode Island Public Transit Authority called RIPTA had a, a public bus that went from Providence to Newport. And so I would walk to the center of the town that I lived in and, and jump on the bus and they would drop me off at the top of Corey's Lane, which is where Portsmouth Abbey is. And I'd walk down and it was almost a mile, I guess. And I did that, you know, until we got old enough where I could, there were other kids in town and I could catch a little ride with them or something like that. But yeah, it was, uh, you, you lived your life around the rip to schedule. I think obviously, you know, determination paid off. Uh, Galesburg, Illinois, there were no boarding schools that you could get to via day school or anything like that. <laughs> uh, I have to tell you, my family was Catholic. My husband's entire family is Catholic. My parents went to Catholic high school and they got pregnant. I wouldn't know until I was 21 years old that they gave up a child for adoption through Catholic Social Services. And my parents' experience was very different. My mom and dad were judged. My mom was kicked out of the school. And so we have kind of a, a mixed uh, relationship, though I think when I think of my parents, they're devout and extraordinary. They don't always trust the institution. <laughs> but I read your book when you talk about being a practicing Catholic, not a devout, holier than thou, because <laughs> a lot of people call you a devout Catholic, but you talk about wanting to be seen as a practicing Catholic. Tell me about that in politics, especially. Well, the, when I was at the White House, and it was the first time that anybody had ever like scrutinized my life in terms of what I'd done and what I'd said and where I grew up. And but what happened was I kept, as I was doing speaking events and going to places, I kept getting asked about events and issues and circumstances and thoughts, et cetera. And I would say, well, that's not really true, whatever it was. And one of the things was my faith. And I said, I think when someone says they're a devout Catholic, I would assume, I mean, they, they probably live a much holier life than I do. Number one. Number two is I admit, you know, wholeheartedly I'm a sinner. I, there isn't a day that it goes by that I don't think I have to end the day by saying, Hey, all right, God, here are the things that I screwed up. Can we get a fresh slate tomorrow? And I don't think that's the life of someone who's devout. I try, but I fail every day of the week. When I had the opportunity to kind of talk about myself, my faith in my own book, I wanted it to be clear 
There was a lot of judgment. I mean, and it it continues, right? I was looking at your Wikipedia page, which I don't know if you've seen it recently, but oh, I don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, you probably don't want to, but it's uh, it's amazing because it runs through your early government appointments. And mind you, for the listeners, of course, you have been in the Navy Reserves. You have had a number of different positions. You House Government Reform Committee, National Republican Congressional Committee, spokesman for the House Budget Committee. And the last thing it says, I don't know who added this to your Wikipedia profile, but he wore an Easter bunny suit during the Easter egg roles. <laughs> I was like, wow, you know, I have to ask you, Sean, because uh, Melissa McCarthy played you on SNL uh, during the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah. First two things. How swift do you think the criticism would be if there was a man playing uh, either Corrine Jean-Pierre or Jen Psaki? I think people would go nuts, especially in Corinne's position. But again, part of the reason that SNL did things was not to be fun. I mean, I think that's that's sort of the issue I have with some of what SNL has become is that back in the day, it was genuinely funny. And that was the idea is to be humorous. And I think where they've sort of crossed the Rubicon is that now it's like an attempt to be mean. And um, and so I don't think that they would that would never happen. And that was going to be my second question is, do you think they poked fairly? Because I remember at the beginning of the administration, you know, the Women's March came up. And look, I think it's legitimate, like watching, you know, Donald Trump say that he could grab women by the um, private parts. I was, you know, that was not okay for me. But then I went to, I was invited to a sign making party with all these, you know, women with their children. And the next day, you know, we went and I was just kind of like, oh my God, these signs are grotesque. You know, I, I'm going to root for the president of the United States and also stand for my values. But some of the signs were like, holy God. And so I wanted SNL at the time to kind of do a like a liberal mom drinking wine and like, you know, Donald Trump is the downfall of our democracy. The things he's saying are so awful. And then be like, you know, have their kid like drawing Donald Trump's face on a dick. And like, and then, you know, them showing it to the mom and be like, oh my God, sweetie, that's so great. <laughs> it was like this disconnect that was just crazy. And I imagine that you kind of felt like um, at the time, I don't know, seeing Melissa McCarthy play you, it was probably not the best feeling. Well, the first time it happened was funny, kind of, if you will. I kind of was like, all right, I've had a tough week. Sometimes if you're telling a joke and your goal is to be funny, people should be laughing. My bigger point is, is that I think we we sort of forgot to be funny on equal sides. And, and so one of the things that I'd always thought was cool growing up in high school and college was that like late night and Saturday, like, we're just, you know, we're reprieved from some of the stuff. You could go and just watch humor. And I was like, ha, 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 everybody can laugh. And then it started to become, nope, it's going to be very political. And I think that's was unfortunate for our society because late night was just funny. And then it became, how do we make late night political? And not political in the sense that any policy discussions were going on. Political in the sense that you're rooting for personalities, which, you know, I think 
a lot of times people don't think about the humans. Right. There's the personal side of it and, and how they go after people. But then there's like, I mean, go look at like the lineup of like, say, Stephen Colbert. I mean, obviously they're striking, but on any other given night, and it's like tonight, Senator Elizabeth Warren, it's like used to be celebrities and stupid human tricks. And now it's like a lineup from Meet the Press. I mean, this time during the campaign and the early White House, you write about your dad was sick, Um, your dad who you admired very much, obviously. Your children were young. What was that time like just personally? Well, look, I think one of the things for me is that I've always been, uh, we are very private when it comes to our family, but you know, you're in the middle of a, of a presidential campaign and, uh, and then subsequently into a transition. And, uh, you know, I just needed, I was like, I'm going to do my job and I don't need everyone to think that I, I'm not doing it. But it, it was, it was a balancing act to be honest with you, both logistically and emotionally. So from the outside looking at it, you faced a skeptical press. And I think, you know, we could expect that because you worked with a president who had no government experience. But then there was also something that maybe mirrored the Clinton administration. I, d- I didn't work in the Clinton administration, but it felt like knives were out for each other sometimes. Was that accurate, like from the inside? Yeah, absolutely. It was like, look, President Trump didn't come to government as a governor or a senator or anything like that. And so he didn't have these group of former staffers or lobbyists or consultants to draw from. And there were some serious growing pains. And I think for a lot of people, those growing pains included learning about how government operates. And so it wasn't, hey, I'm standing in your way. It's more, this is how it works. So if you want to make change, you know, here's how we have to do it. And I think for a lot of people, the, the institution was a little daunting for them. When you were in this situation and people are throwing each other under the bus and it always felt like Donald Trump was his own spokesperson. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. What was that like? It took adapting to, meaning that for 20 something years of my life, I'd been the person that would craft a message, workshop it, if you will, for lack of a better word, with the team and the, and the principal, member of Congress, candidate, whatever. And then you'd all kind of execute on it. That's how it always had been. And I think the idea with Trump was you'd sit down and then maybe somebody walked in the Oval Office, maybe he just disagreed with you, whatever. And sometimes he would just change the narrative or change the message or change his mind, wherever it was. And that was just reality. And you had to learn to sometimes follow more than try to lead. And The tweets, like when he tweeted Kofefe or whatever that was, was there anything to it? I've asked him, we've talked about it a little, but I mean, I I think there was a general acceptance that he just dozed off after he was trying to hit, uh, you know, type something. So, you know, in typical Trump form, you got to go out there. And I think he said something to the effect of uh, a small selective group of people know what it means. And, you know, he, he had fun with it. I had to speak about it at the briefing. But for all the times that people say, well, only if he didn't tweet or if only he didn't do that, I would say to them, well, I don't know that he'd be here if he didn't do that. And I don't think that, I mean, part of the the authenticity that he had as a candidate in 2015 was because of that. And I also think that, I mean, it was kind of cool in a, in a weird way for all the people who wonder about their government sometimes. You didn't have a layer of 30 people 
deciphering stuff. I mean, the president of the United States tell you what you like and what he likes and what he didn't. And, you know, again, sometimes you didn't want to hear the message, but the reality is there's something refreshing about literally knowing, okay, like that's where he stands and that's what he believes because he just tweeted it. And you're not getting a bunch of spin sometimes from a spokesperson. Did any of our press secretaries reach out to you? Of course, I worked with all of them, um, Gibbs, Carney, and Josh. Who'd you talk to? Yeah, Josh, uh, who was press secretary, and Jen Psaki, who was communications director at the time, were extremely helpful and generous with their time during the transition. Robert and I did an event with David Axelrod in Chicago, and so he had reached out, Robert had. I think that's it on the Dem side. McCurry and I, Mike McCurry and I uh, go back a while. I know I've known him. He was super... Um, helpful. He had some really great logistical suggestions and ideas. And then Dana and Ari Fleischer were super helpful as well. So Mike McCurry, I've heard, and I think he's been pretty public, regrets putting the briefing as a televised briefing, right? Yep. And, and Ari has, what they have sort of suggested is that the briefing become tape delayed. You would have the briefing occur. It would be taped and then it would air at the conclusion. But if they if they think in real time that this is a social media experiment to get more followers and subscribers, that it takes away from the briefing. And I, I get that. I agree with that. I, I tested it some of my time there. It's just, it, it became too much of a show um, where you're not disseminating information. And I also think, frankly, the briefing is overplayed. The, the I mean, I would get to the White House between 5 and 5.30, um, and I would leave probably at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., when I was there and prior to my time, like reporters can queue up all the way up until the press secretary's office and they can stand there and wait for your door to open all day long. And that, and then obviously email and phone calls, but like 90% of the interactions you have with the media aren't at the briefing because frankly, a lot of times when they have something good, they don't want to say it in front of a hundred other reporters. They want to come to you and say, Hey, I'm working on this piece on this policy or this announcement that we think you guys are doing. And we'd like some insight on it. But the Washington Post doesn't want to tell the New York Times or ABC News or, what, or, or you know, whomever. It was kind of crazy to me because I knew Jim Acosta, of course, CNN, when he was covering us. And he was not, you know, the television star that <laughs> he, I guess, became during the administration by asking aggressive questions. I mean, we always had, uh, Jonathan Carl was always very, you know, like confrontational uh, with our press secretaries. And I remember, you know, there wasn't always tons of love for Jonathan Carl, but I actually loved Jonathan Carl. He was like, he had, I think his daughter toured the University of Kansas. He was always kind on our trips. You know, like watching some of these CNN personalities, particularly become like anti-Trump, celebrities was so bizarre to me during that Trump administration. What was that even like? I've known a lot of these guys for a long time um, based on my previous jobs. And I mean, I think a lot of them just became clowns. I mean, Jonathan in particular threatened me at one point because I hadn't called on him and said I was threatening his livelihood. Um, you know, and it was all about a show to him, trying to make sure that he got on television and it was, I think, a disservice to journalism. Acosta is the same way. I've known Jim a long time, but it was almost like a light, a switch went off and it was like, OK, the lights are on, the camera's on. Now I'm going to be a clown. I think the job of the press secretary is to really get information and then deliver the information. I would just take it off 
all together off the camera. But um, obviously, that's, you know, not being done. So uh, what is the one piece of advice Donald Trump gave you that you remember that sticks with you? Oh, God, I've never been asked that. That's actually a really good question. Um, I mean, he, he had two axioms that really weren't specific to me, but he always, you know, with sort of controversy raises the story. And when you're right, you fight. He understood, you know, how to how to make things happen in terms of messaging. Uh, I think he's like a marketing genius when it comes to Donald Trump. But I do think it's dangerous when we talk about each other in America as the problem. <laughs> I have this belief, you may have noticed, that I think we have more in common than we believe. So I wanted to test this thesis and ask you, like, what are you watching on television right now? We'll watch things on Prime or Netflix or something like a series. My daughter is very into the women's soccer. Um, I mean, obviously I, I binge succession. I love that. I did. I, so the thing is with all of these shows, when someone tells me something like this, I will like, I mean, tonight, I don't know, tonight I might actually really pull this off, but like, I will find a time I'll sit down and then I just don't like, I get scary. I'll just go click when it says continue to the next episode. I'm like, yep, I will crush it. At least a season. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> it's hard to think back sometimes because um, there's one on um, a Netflix called The Lincoln Lawyer. I got into it. I don't know why I even like. I just. Oh yes. And my even my daughter the other day is like, "What are you watching?" And I'm like, "I don't know." But I got into it and I just kept going. My husband was like, "Lincoln Lawyer is back. We need to watch Lincoln Lawyer." <laughs> I, mean, Jack, I, I binged all of Jack Ryan. I'm like, "Let's go another season." And I think this, that was the last one for Jack Ryan. But I will just keep. I will start one and go. Well, and to the point of you know your children. That's what I think we so much have in common. What do you want for your children? in the future in America? I think what I want is them to have an opportunity to grow up and pursue things. And I know that sounds simplistic, but I think in these days, a lot of, you know, and I, I have a boy and a girl, so I get it from both sides. I, I want to make sure that my son grows up in an environment that he can learn in, that he can try things, that he can fail. Because um, I think too often right now, kids, you know, if something goes wrong, little Timmy says something about someone in class and they're branded on Google forever. Um, and, and I want my daughter to be able to pursue things without having, you know, uh, opportunities close to her that I think in some ways are happening now. So, I mean, you know, for, for each of them, there's a little different, but I want them to have the opportunity to succeed, to grow up and uh, pursue things that that they enjoy that will make them happy. I wrote my son a letter because I had had him while I was working in the White House and it was it was very fast paced, as you know. And um, I wrote my son a letter when I was leaving, and I remember I read it once on Alex Michelson podcast, but, you know, I think that's right. I want him to be confident. I want him to be happy, and I want him to have an America that gives him that freedom to explore who he is. What do you think we need to do on different sides of the political aisle to get to a point where we can have a kid, like a America for our kids, where they don't feel this toxic division? I mean, as somebody on the right, I feel, I mean, look, I think if you think about right now, the left controls Hollywood, late night, big tech, academia, government, big corp, I mean, corporate America. I mean, part of it is, is that they don't have the space and we don't have the space to say things and express ourselves the way that we used to. 
you know, you, you watch these companies come out and virtue signal, you know, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday about this. I just, I want a company to do their job, right? So if you make shoes, make shoes. If you sell food, sell food, uh, make a profit, take care of your workers. Now I feel like they all have to insert themselves in every cultural and political and societal issue, which I don't care. I actually don't want people to be right-leaning at Target. I don't want Target to start coming out and supporting pro-life causes. I just want them to be a good store that sells things at a good price, take care of your employees, take care of your shareholders. But I feel like these companies now have to jump in. And of course, the default is they all have to say something on the left. And I just, I don't get it. I think it's really interesting to reflect on this interview in a moment ahead of what looks to be just a very contentious election. And I know that when it's really heated, a lot of us can be inclined to shut down, to stop talking politics with people we disagree with, to not find any agreement. Believe you me, I have done it myself. But I am of the mindset that especially during these contentious times, we are going to have to do better and try harder to get to know each other's perspectives. I really think we're just at this moment where a lot of people, they have fear for what is to come in our country and whether their dreams for their children are preserved. To have some grace for one another Gosh, it would be better than what we did last time around. Sean has a perspective, and I am really grateful that he shared it on Press Advance. For all of you enjoying the podcast, do let us know, leave a review, and share it on social media. You can find me on social media at Johanna Masca. The selection cycle is going to come whether we like it or not, and I do hope that we can keep building the community where we respect, empower, include.